2 Kings chapter 22, we'll begin reading in verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan, or Shaphan, the, the scribe, <clears throat> I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and had delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Ahiah the servant of the king, saying, Go ye inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers hath not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that which is written concerning us. There's television programs on that show people restoring different items. And I think that a lot of people like to get involved with restoring automobiles, old cars. You don't go to the store or go to the car dealer, buy a brand new car, and start to restore it. It's usually an old car that needs some work. And so somebody takes the time to to uh, do the things that are necessary to bring it up to uh, working condition. But many times it looks like new. They're trying to restore it to make it look like it did when, you first, when it was first bought. People do that with old uh, furniture. They can take antique furniture and they can restore it and make it look like it used to look when it was uh, brand new. Same is true with uh, restoring oil paintings. You know, you watch this old, or what, uh, what is it, an antique road show and some of those other programs and you can see where they tell people how much it would be worth if they restored that painting uh, because it would add sometimes hundreds or thousands of dollars to the price uh, of what it's worth. And so we can see the, the desire that people have to restore and to duplicate things back to the original condition. And that's what I want to talk about today when it comes to the church. There would be no need to restore the church if it had not had some corruption that had taken place in it. And the same is true with a car or an antique or anything like that, that it wouldn't need restored if it was still in the original shape that it was when it was first bought. And so we understand that there's things that need to be changed, and that was one of the things that got the restoration movement started. People wanted to go back to the Bible and have the church Follow just simply the Bible, not the creeds of men, but what the Bible teaches us concerning what they did in the first century and how they conducted uh, the Lord's work there. And so in Jeremiah, I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. We find there that it says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk. Therein, why were they encouraged to seek the old paths in order, in, in other words, to go back to the original because they had neglected following the law of God? 
There are different kings that we can read in the Old Testament that just did not want to listen to what God said. And so we see that they needed to go back to the old ways, go back to the law, go back to what God had originally said, what God wanted them to do, and put that into practice. But you see there in that verse, what was their answer? We will not walk therein. In other words, they would rather have something that was different than what God's word gave or said that they needed to do. And so they ignored God's word. And when we look in our text that we read there in uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, we can find there that Josiah found the book of law. Again, they had neglected the law of God. And he rent his clothes when he heard what the words were in that book or in that law because he knew that they had violated that law and that God was upset. And so he wanted to restore that original law. He wanted them to follow that original law, not some other law that they came up with. And so the question that I would have to, for you to think about is when they restored that restored their their uh, relationship with God back to the law following what God said do originally did they have a new law the answer is no because they went back to the original what God has said they went back to what doing doing what God has said not what the kings had changed the the word of God to say not what they had ignored what they had added to it they went back to do what God's word said that they needed to do and that's exactly what happens when we begin to practice the New Testament teachings that have, we're not establishing a new denomination. We're simply doing what they did in the beginning. That's our, our mission as the Lord's Church, to go back to the Bible, to live according to God's plan. And many times people look at that and say, well, that's archaic or, or uh, legalistic. No, that's having a desire to do what God wants us to do. We claim to be followers of Christ, followers of God. We claim that we're going to go to heaven. So if we're going to do that, then we need to listen and obey what God has told us to do. And so we see what they did on the day of Pentecost when they obeyed the gospel. They were added to the Lord's church. And so it's his church, and that's what we need to understand. We cannot change it. And I hear members of the church sometimes say, I don't understand why we can't do, and they fill in the blank. Sometimes they don't understand why we can't uh, add instruments, why we don't have uh, women preachers, why we don't have other things that uh, the world has or the denominational world has. Why can't we do those things? Well, the answer is simply, it's not in the New Testament. We practice what the Bible teaches, and that's what we're trying to restore, the New Testament church. And so, therefore, the restoration movement uh, seeks to restore the original church and to unify all Christians in obedience to the Lord as he prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. What did he say in that prayer? Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me. And I in thee, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. 
You see, I believe that the denomination, all the denominational uh, isms that are out there, all the different churches, different types of churches, that's made people lose interest in hearing what God has to say and understanding what true Christianity is. Because you can see that there's many different denominations out there. One will say do this, one will say do this, and someone else will say do, do something different. And they all have a different plan. And many times on the surface they sound good. But when you dig into their doctrines, you can find out that it's not what the Bible teaches. It's what man has come up with. And I think that all of these churches, all these different denominations out there, is exactly what Satan wants. He's flooded the market with churches. And I've had people that have visited. I've talked to people that have said, well, we're just searching. We're looking for something that we like. Well, it isn't really, we shouldn't really be looking for something that we like. We should actually like what God wants. And we can have what God wants when we go back to the New Testament. And so is all of this confusion, when you look out there in the religious world, is all the confusion, is that God's fault? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So God is not the author of that confusion. God wants us to be united. And that doesn't mean that we just do whatever we, can, we do ourselves and then say, Oh, we can, you know, we'll agree to disagree and we'll be united. No. We have to look at what the Bible teaches, and we all have to follow God's plan in order to do that. And I think that we see an example of what Paul is talking about. We know that there, are, there is biblical examples and encouragement for unity. But look at what was happening in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, beginning in verse 10, it says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, what's Paul saying? He's saying that we're all supposed to be saying the same thing. Now, we can find from other passages of the scripture that if we speak, we're to speak as the oracles of God. That means that we all should be saying what God wants us to say. But the problem that they had at Corinth is a problem that we have in a religious world today. Because he goes on. Verse 11, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there is contentions among you. Now I say that every one that saith that I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. What were they doing? They were following different individuals as opposed to following Christ. That happens in the world today. That happens in, religious, in the religious world today. It happens in the church today where we would rather follow an individual, even if they're teaching something that's contrary to the scripture, we still will follow that individual. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Paul is saying we're all to speak the same thing. We're all supposed to believe the same thing. And so that's exactly what he's admonishing them to do. Get back to following Christ. He's our leader. He's our, he's our master. He's our Lord. That's who we are to serve. And so we strive to restore the church and have it united and work together. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 through 23, And I put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What do we learn from that passage of the scripture? That Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, that means it's his church. And if it's his church... 
He has the only, he's the only one with the authority to tell us what we need to do. And so he, told, he, he gave instruction in the New Testament that he was going to have the Holy Spirit descend on the apostles and guide them in all truth and remind them of things that he wanted them to teach. And so we listen to what Jesus said and we listen to what the apostles said. Why? Because we know that it is from God. And Christ is the head of the church, so we don't have the authority to change anything in the church, in the Bible, in the plan of salvation. And we could go on and on. We don't have that authority. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, it says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are in one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So again, we see encouragement to be united. United by following what Jesus teaches in the Word of God. We see in the New Testament also a pattern. There are many people that want to deny that there's a pattern, but I think that we see that pattern because it was followed in many different congregations that we can read about in the New Testament. They were neither Protestant, they were neither Catholic or Jews, but Christians only. And in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, And when they found him, they brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What does that word Christian mean? It means Christ-like. And so if we're going to follow Christ, shouldn't we be living our lives so that people can see Christ living in us? And if we are Christ-like, wouldn't that mean that in our worship, in our, in our uh, relationship with God, our spiritual relationship with God, wouldn't that mean that we're going to follow what Jesus tells us to do? There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. We don't want to be a part of that confusion, so we want to go back and restore the New Testament church. You see, the restoration movement developed from several different efforts over a period of time. During the Middle Ages, there were dissenters such as John Wycliffe and John Huss called uh, the restoration to a primitive form of Christianity. In other words, going back to the Bible, getting rid of all the creeds, getting rid of all the, the uh, catechisms, getting rid of, rid of all the, uh, the doctrines that are out there in addition to what the scripture teaches. And so they were encouraging people to go back to the scriptures only. What more do we need than the scriptures? We know that the English Puritans, when they came over here in the Mayflower, they came here to restore a primitive church community. They wanted to get back to what the Bible was teaching. That was their goal. Right after the American Revolution, men from various backgrounds began to see the need to reject human creeds and the doctrines and the traditions of men and return to the scriptures only. In 1801, Barton W. Stone, who was a Presbyterian, began preaching the restoration Christianity at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And his group followed the New Testament and called themselves simply Christians. 
Another group began in 1809 in Pennsylvania and West Virginia and were led by Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander Campbell, who were also Presbyterians. They called themselves the Disciples of Christ. And James O'Kelly, who was a Methodist in, in 1794, and Elias Smith and Abner Jones, who were Baptists uh, in 1804, led similar groups. Basically, these individuals looked at what their doctrines taught, looked at their creeds, looked at their, all the things that were added, and said, why don't we just go back to the Bible? Because I don't think you have to be very smart to understand that with all of these different doctrines that are out there, that it's going to lead to confusion. And people are going to say, why follow it? These groups believe that the creeds of men kept Christianity divided. And I think that we see that today, how the religious world is divided because of those creeds. You see, God has given us everything that we need. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter tells us, According to his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And so the question is, do we believe what Peter is telling us? I believe that Peter is speaking here through inspiration. I believe that the Bible confirms that, that he's telling us that God has given us everything that we need. And if God has given us everything that we need that pertain to life and godliness, what more could man add to it to make it better? God is the creator. God is the one who tells us what we are to do, what we need to do. Can I add anything to what he's told us? You see, the great principle of the restoration movement was uh, we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. And so the Bible is silent. We can't go ahead and say, well, something's okay. We can go ahead and do it. Well, there were some that thought that. In fact, Martin Luther insisted that he could do anything that the scriptures did not forbid. That it would be okay. And I've heard even members of the church say, well, God doesn't say we can't. I preached a sermon about that not too long ago. The Bible doesn't say we can't. So that means that it's okay. And I think that we understand that when our parents said, you, you, you need to do this particular thing, that eliminated a lot of other things. And when God told Noah to build an ark out of gopher wood, that eliminated all the other kinds of woods that he could have used. And so silence of the scripture does not give us permission. But then there was another individual, Ulrich Zwigli, who said that he could only do what the scriptures authorized. Now really, isn't that a better attitude to have? I know one time I had someone call me one time. They were upset. They were upset with what I had said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They said, you only tell people what the Bible says. You can't just do that. you got to tell them more. And I said, well, thank you. That's the greatest compliment that I've ever gotten. What, what do you mean? If I only tell people what the Bible says, then I can't be wrong. When I start adding my opinion and what I think and my interpretation, I can be wrong. But when I say what the Bible says, I think I'll be in good standing on the day of judgment. 
Because what's the Lord going to say? You only told them what my word said. I don't say that to boast. I say that because that's members of the church and that's the attitude that they have. You can't just say what the Bible says. Yeah, you can just say what the Bible says. Because that's what we're supposed to be living by. What the Bible teaches us. You see, it has to do with how we believe God. Did Jesus keep his promises to the apostles? As I said, we don't, it's not just the words that Jesus spoke, but it's the words that Jesus gave to his apostles through the Holy Spirit that we also follow. Because in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 13, Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truths. For he shall not, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So what's Jesus saying? The Holy Spirit is going to guide you in truth. So what we have from the apostles, the writings that we have, are the same as coming from Jesus Christ himself. The question is, do we want to believe what the Bible says? It's evident that a lot of people do not want to put their trust in what God's word says. So did the Spirit guide them in all truths or not? Was Peter correct when he said that we have all things that pertain to life and godliness, that God's provided all those things? Was he truthful? I believe he was. So I think that it gets back to how we, we approach the Bible. Do we believe that the Bible is God's word? Do we believe that it's something that God can guide us? Or is it there just kind of like a suggestion? You see, the Bible plainly teaches us in several different passages not to add to nor to take away from the word of God. And just because man sees nothing wrong with a belief or an act... And does, it does not mean that God approves of it. When you use the words, he doesn't say, I can't. It does not mean that we can add to it. We can take away from it or do anything else. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death, or are the ways of death. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Children of Israel many times ignored God's word. And that's why Josiah was trying to restore that, uh, that condition. Get them back into worshiping God. Get them back into following the commands of God. That was very important. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So God is saying, what I tell you to do, don't, don't change it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Do what I've told you to do. And I think that we see a good example of that with Noah. Because the Bible says, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And as a result of him following the directions that God had given, not adding to it or taking away from it, we see that he was saved, him and his family, in the flood. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them, or unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his word, lest he reprove thee, and thou shalt be found a liar. 
In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So again, warning after warning after warning. Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from God's word. What he also tells us, be obedient to God's word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. When we start adding our own doctrines, when we start adding our own commands, our own desires, guess what? Our worship becomes vain. I would hate to know that we get there on a day of judgment and find out that our worship is vain because we follow some man-made doctrine or practice something that man came up that made them feel better. Because it sounds like we'd be lost, doesn't it? Because our worship would be vain. It would be a waste of our time. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and 20 through 23. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of wisdom in, all, in will worship and humility and in the neglecting of the body, not in, our, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, people can come up with things that will sound good, make you feel good, but it's not right. It's contrary to what God has commanded. And so we need to be always cautious of what we are doing and make sure that we're living in accordance to God's will. We can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Where Paul says. For these things brethren. I have in a figure transferred to myself. And to Apollos for your sakes. That she might learn in, in, in us. Not to think of a man. Above that which is written. That no one of you. Being, be puffed up. For one another. Or one against another. Don't follow people. Follow Christ. Follow what Jesus has said in his word. That's what Paul encouraged them to do at Corinth. That's what he would encourage us to do today if he was here. As I said earlier in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. You see, when we're serving God, when we're doing the things that we're supposed to do, it is to give God the glory. How are we living our lives? When we let our light shine, is it to glorify God? Or is it to make ourselves look good? We do what God wants us to do because we love God. And we want to serve Him. It's astonishing. At how men presume to the right to speak and act in their own initiative. They do what neither the Lord Jesus nor the Holy Spirit ever dared to do. Jesus, when he was here on this earth, what did he say? What did he come for? To do his Father's will. Now, if he did not do his Father's will, 
What would have given him the right to tell us that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven? If he ignored the Father, why couldn't we ignore the Father? But you see, he set the example that he followed our Father, and he expects us to follow our Father also. We see people today in the religious world inventing and adding strange forms of worship, reshaping the organization of the church, assuming people or alternative ways of obeying the gospel. You don't hear people say what the Bible says that they said on the day of Pentecost. When they cried out on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? What did Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What was the purpose? To have the forgiveness of sin. Today, I'd guarantee you in the religious world, if you saw someone say, what shall we do? The big crowd cried that out. What would they be the answer? Pray this prayer. Come down to the front. Someone will pray with you. It's not going to be what they said on the day of Pentecost. That's what the answer should be. But it's not. In Second John, verse 9, it says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrines of Christ, hath not God, and he that abideth in the doctrines of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. So if we're not in that doctrine, if we added things, changed things, we're not with Christ. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. That's an important passage of Scripture because Paul is telling Timothy to teach faithful men who can teach other people. So you got Paul in the first generation, Timothy in the second generation, faithful men in the next generation who are going to teach another generation of faithful men. So what does that mean? It's going to continue on. Paul realized that the gospel wasn't going to change. God's word isn't going to change. God's not going to change. And we must never presume the right to act or speak in the, in the, where God has been silent on any matter. And so from the Bible, we can learn several things. For one, I don't have everything on the screen, but congregation autonomy is something that is very important. That no congreg other congregation rules over this congregation. We don't rule over any other congregation. That each congregation is autonomous. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to come up with our own doctrine. Because I've always been amazed when I, you know, when, when you go visit another congregation, it felt like it was the same. You were, you were right at home. You heard the same gospel. You worshiped in the right way. You did all the things that you've seen commanded in the Bible. That's not always true today. A lot of things have changed. And when you go visit a congregation, sometimes you better call and make sure that what they're doing is right. Before you go, because sometimes people get away from following God's law. But we realize that each congregation is autonomous and it is to be governed by, when, uh, by biblically qualified men who can serve as elders, deacons, uh, preachers, and teachers. We are united in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi to ask his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But thou say, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I shall say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There we see the confession that Peter made. It's a confession that every Christian would make, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is our Savior, that he came to this earth and he died for our sins. We also recognize that on, we observed the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Why? Because in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, that Paul preached unto them ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. The only passage of Scripture that we show where it shows the exact day that they came together uh, to, to partake of the Lord's Supper. We also realize from Matthew cha- or Mark chapter 16, 15 to 16, that immersion in water is necessary. It's a necessary condition for salvation. Because Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when the the, the group there that was there, about 3,000 souls, cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. See in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. What baptism represents, the death, burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we go down into that water, we come up out of that water, a new creature, cleansed by the saving blood of our, our Savior, who died on the cross for us. Galatians chapter 3, and verse 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. How do we get into Christ? We're baptized into Christ. Is baptism essential to salvation? The scripture teaches us that it is. If you want to ignore all of those scriptures that talk about baptism, and when you know what the word means, you know that it's immersion. It isn't sprinkling. It isn't pouring. It isn't something of that nature. It is a total immersion in water. And when you know that, how can someone say baptism isn't essential to salvation? But yet you hear that every day. Every day someone will say, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. There are calls in the New Testament also for repentance. And sometimes those calls are for individuals. Other times it's for a congregation. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in the fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Sometimes as individuals, we sin. As Christians, we get away from God. We do things that we're not supposed to. We need to repent when that happens. We can see in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and verse 5, that a congregation of God's people were told that they needed to repent or their candlestick would be removed. And so we see that as a Christian, that sometimes we may sin. As a congregation, it's possible that a congregation could sin. Start practicing the things that they think are okay, but are contrary to God's word. And when that happens, we need to repent and get back to serving God. Exactly what Josiah was wanting them to do, wanting the children of Israel to do. We need to understand that Jesus said he would build his church. 
It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. We're all part of that church if we've been baptized into Christ. We're part of that family. But it's still his church. And he is the head of that church. And he has, only, he has the authority to tell us what we are to do in order to be a faithful congregation of his people, to be a faithful individual as his people. And so we need to understand our part. And our part is to serve our God, who has been so gracious to us, who loves us so much, and Jesus, who's been a tremendous example for each and every one of us. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I would hope that you'd want to be a part of the church that Jesus died for, the church that he built. And if, not, if you're not a part of that congregation or that church, then you need to be a part of it. You need to be obedient to his gospel. We've already said what Jesus said we needed to do, and that is to be baptized, to believe and be baptized. You can do that this morning. You can do that anytime. We're available day or night to baptize people into Christ if that's the desire that they have. This morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, we would encourage you to come and have a seat up here on the front row. You have that opportunity while we stand and sing.